22, where we pick up our study, where we left off. In the middle of the elect King David running as a, a fugitive from King Saul, who's driven by crazy jealousy, hunting him down. Tonight we're going to pick up in chapter 22 and see what the Lord has for us. So let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we always like to bow our hearts before you and ask for your blessing. We ask that the Holy Spirit just open the eyes of our understanding that we could see these truths that you have for us tonight, put them into practice and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, David is on the run. He shouldn't be, but he is. And he's on the run from a mad king who burns with a murderous, jealous rage. Now, the only thing David's guilty of is being a better man than Saul for outshining wicked King Saul, whom he's been serving. Now, God has made it very clear a few chapters ago that King Saul should step aside for his uh, continual rebellion and his unbelief. And that David, a man uniquely gifted and uniquely called by God, and now uh, becoming well-regarded and well-loved by Israel, um, it would be David's throne. King Saul needed to step aside because King Saul forfeited the grace that could be his because of his sinful uh, disobedience. Now, Saul's response, knowing that he needs to step down, is over my dead body and anyone else's body who tries to remove him from power. So he's really bent on ridding the earth of his rival, uh, David. And really, God help literally anyone, including Jonathan, his own son, who will get in the way. Now, you know, David's not a coward. He's a pretty courageous man. He's taken down a, a Goliath, a giant of a man and a warrior. Uh, but David is not going to fight King Saul. He's going to trust God. He's not going to manipulate his way and take things into his own hands. He figures that God is big enough and strong enough to remove King Saul in his time and in his way. He doesn't need David's help. So this is a time where David is, is going to just trust the Lord to uh, put him in position where God wants him to be. So when we last gathered, uh, David had fled into enemy territory because uh, he's, he figures King Saul would never search for him in Philistia, the land of the Philistines. Now, the whole idea there last week was probably seeking political asylum from the king of the Philistines. Uh, but they realized, as you recall, uh, that David would be a great uh, threat to them as they connected the dots and realized who this guy was. And uh, so David felt like he was in danger because he was, because the Philistine troops caught on. This is the guy they sing about and write songs about. This guy kills 10,000s of 10,000s. And so uh, the, the ranks be began to close in upon him, and then that's when David started acting insane. 
to save his life. So he realizes he's in grave danger, so he starts scratching at the gates and the doors like a frenzied animal, and he's letting the drool dribble down the, the corners of his beard. And then that really gave it away. And the king of Achish said last chapter, he says, what, I don't have enough crazy men in Philistia that you're now importing them from the land of Israel. Get this guy out of here. So in that kind of distraction, David is going to have an open door to escape, which brings us to verse 1 of 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, David goes spelunking. Now, the word spelunking is for the hobby of exploring caves. All right, so Adullam means refuge or hiding place. So because of King Saul's hot pursuit, David will be spelunking on and off for about 10 years. Now, this particular cave called Adullam, uh, it is about 10 miles from where he just escaped, where they tried to institutionalize him almost. It's 10 miles from there. And it's uh, just really 15 miles from Bethlehem, his hometown. Now, in later chapters, it will be uh, a lot of different caves and a different cave in a different uh, place called En Gedi uh, by the Dead Sea and Masada. Now, in the preface of the psalm that we read, 142, it says, while he was in the cave. And commentators say which one, but it doesn't really matter which one he wrote it in. These, these are. This is a song for when you're in the cave, and and when you're in the cave. Here's what he says. Even though the name of the cave is called refuge, he says in Psalm 142 about being in the cave of refuge. He says, "I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living." Now, we've been finding that the key to David's success of being one of the most blessed men in the Bible is that he worships his way through life. When he's happy, he writes songs. When he's sad, he worships the Lord. When he's in need, he worships the Lord. When he's content, he worships the Lord. The New Testament principle there. I think is found in James chapter 5 where it says, Is any of you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. James chapter 5 and verse 13. David had a song for good times and bad and uh, everything in between. Now, believers must imitate David. Uh, whatever state we find ourselves in, we, uh, we offer God the worshipful sacrifice of a heart of trust and a willing spirit to do his will. I like what Job said in chapter 2 and verse 10 to his wife who said, you know, give up on this whole thing with God. Can't you see God's hand is against you? And he said, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Shall we not accept good from God and bad from God as well, just good? 
No, of course, we accept the bad times as well. David is a mature believer, and mature believers can worship God uh, all the time, even when things aren't going your way. A mature believer knows how to surrender to the Lord's will and to know Romans 8.28 says that for God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And they just lay down their lives and walk right through dark times, light times, high times, low times. That's the secret of his life because there's a psalm for every chapter this guy's going through. And it doesn't mean that we need to be singers it just means that we need to have a worshipful spirit that walks with God in the good times and the bad times. That's kind of the secret to this guy. So he's in the cave and he's writing uh, worshipful songs. He finds his hiding place here now in friendly territory. He's out of Philistia and a word gets back apparently that to David's family in Bethlehem who are now interested in spelunking as well with David. Now, why the change of heart? You'll recall in chapter 16 that dad didn't even think enough of David to invite him to the family uh, dinner with Samuel. And you'll remember in chapter 17, David's older brother tore into him in a jealous fit of rage, unjustly criticizing David um, just because David seemed interested in going to bat against Goliath, if you recall that. So why suddenly are they going to the cave to meet up with David? Well, first of all, Saul's rage against David has probably extended to his family. And if he wants to kill Jonathan, his own son, because of Jonathan's connection with David, how much more David's biological relatives. So I'm sure they feared a royal reprisal if they stayed in Bethlehem where Saul uh, naturally would come looking for David. Or perhaps, you know, they're just seeing the light that King Saul does not have God's blessing and David, their own son and brother, does. And so maybe they're just uh, done with Saul and they want to make amends with their brother and son uh, David, And that would explain uh, why 400 defectors are going to the cave now in these opening verses. Uh, your verse there, verse 2 says, Under Saul, uh, men were distressed and uh, discontent, bitter of soul. Uh, that's the Hebrew there. Uh, Saul was ruining the nation. And uh, men who were in debt and felt the effects of Saul's inept leadership are, are now going to flee to King David, 400 of them. And incidentally, that number grows to 600 mighty men. You'll find that in chapters 23 and chapters 25. Now, David gains support, and that's kind of nice. What a blessing for David, who's been alone in the cave writing these psalms, and then 400 guys plus his own family show up there in the wilderness by the cave, and uh, that's a blessing, you know. But only those sick of Saul and his reign came to David. Uh, those who were doing comfortably well under the wicked king, um, well, they had to make a choice. Who's going to lead me, Saul or David? Saul, the wicked king who rules by deceit and rebellion, the kingdom of darkness against God, or David, a man after God's own heart and right relationship, 
the kingdom of light. These guys had to make a choice. And by the way, um, you know, these 400 men often get a bad rap. They're also often called a motley crew of discontent, mal- malcontents, really, um, which just means bad guys. But they're not just bad guys. Really, the, uh, the understanding here is that they don't fit in to Saul's corrupt uh, kingdom that they're having a difficult time of it because of Saul's uh, evilness. And so they're feeling the pinch of being in that, in that realm. And so they want a different leader. And so they're, they're looking for God's man in David. And so these down and outers, now listen to this and see if you hear anything familiar. These down and outers go to David when he's exiled, when he seems to be weak, alone and humiliated, even though one day he'd reign because he's the true king. Sound familiar? Well, it's the gospel story. Alan Redpath has a great quote. He says, now, just as in David's time, there's another king in exile, the son of David, gathering around him a group of people who are in distress, who are spiritual debtors, and discontent to live under the evil prince of the power of the air. As the discontent come to him, he's training them for the day he comes to reign. And now only souls discontent with the evil in them and around them come to Christ. They see past Jesus' weakness on the cross to his true identity as God the Son and his true destiny as well, and they find refuge. And it will be these same ones who will then reign in power and glory when their anointed king enters into his personal uh, appointed kingdom in glory. So Paul says it pretty well there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, uh, believers are the not many wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth, the weak and the lowly in this world, fed up with the king Saul the devil, and, the, and we defect to the despised king. And by doing so, we are despised as well. Now, uh, verses three through five. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab And they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went into the forest of Hereth. So point number two, the fifth commandment. David looks after mom and dad. Now notice David's agape love in this guy's heart. Look at his character. He's got enough problems of his own right now. He's being hunted down by some murderer, you know. And uh, his folks, really, his dad especially, and his brothers haven't been very supportive. And he could say, you know what, I've got enough of my problems. You guys only want to be around me now that you're in trouble. And so he doesn't do things like that. He's not going to be a spear thrower like Saul. He's not going to stoop and become like Saul. He's going to be the loving guy that he is. And he's not going to become like his brother or his father and and going to start to act in a revengeful kind of way. 
So David uh, seeks protection for his parents, and, and political asylum is the idea now. This time it's with the king of Moab. Now you'll recall that the Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot through a very unfortunate circumstance that I don't need to go into. But Moses, um, in Moses' day, the Moabites were really at odds with Israel. In fact, you remember the king of Moab is the one who hired Balaam to curse Israel. They were very, 500 years before this time, this was going on. Well, a lot of things have changed in this. Why does David feel like he can go to the king of Moab and say, hey, can you do a, a, a favor for my father, who is the grandson of Ruth the Moabitess, who is my great-grandmother? David and Jesse are great and grandsons of Ruth the Moabitess. And so surely that is the connection there, and surely that is why the king agrees. And mom and dad can stay in Moab under the protection of the king of Moab, and certainly they still know relatives that are blood-related to whom? To David. Blood-related because of Ruth and uh, not only that, that makes Jesus have some, on his human side, some blood of the Moabites. So that, that's just an incredible thought there. Uh, you can read about that in Ruth chapter 4 and verses 18 through 22. And so the text says, at that time, David is living in the strongholds. The, strong, the word for stronghold, Masuda, and, and Bible scholars say that's Masada. And if you go to Israel with us, we will go to Masada. And here's what it looks like. And it's in these caves and strongholds where David fled. So why don't you get the lights there and put that on? There we go. Get the, all the lights so they can see it. That's the Dead Sea, which we will float in. We will take a tram, because you go in and you cannot even sink in it. You just lay because of the mineral content. And from the Dead Sea, we take a tram up the side of that mountain. And at the top there is Masada. And this is the strongholds where David was. And all along these ridges are caves that are still there. And, and just a few miles up is called En Gedi. And this is where for sure that David was hiding and fleeing from Saul. So it's an exciting place. I have been, I've stood up there with other people who have been to Israel. And it just, it's, a, it's phenomenal to see this is the place. And, and it recorded there in the scripture. So with that, we can turn the lights back on. <laughs> Thank you. Now, if I could ever find where I am in all of this. Okay, so then from, uh, from there, the prophet Gad comes and says, okay, it's time to go to a safer place in Judah. And then uh, the word hereth there in Hebrew in verse 5 means thicket. And so he goes to the forest there. And by the way, this prophet Gad is going to be around all through David's life. He's the one who rebukes him for that um, ungodly census that he takes there in 2 Samuel 24. He also assists David in a music ministry in the sanctuary, uh, 2 Chronicles 29. And Gad will write a book about David's reign in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 6 through 10. 
Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all the officials standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my own son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Dog, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's official, said, You know, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, Roman numeral number three, Saul the crybaby. Or you could put Saul's Halloween costume, the me monster. All right, he's ready. He's ready to rock on Halloween. Saul and his self-absorbed blubbering. Now, you remember Dog, Doeg? He got introduced last uh, chapter. Uh, he was when David ran to uh, the, um, when he ran to where the high priests were, Dog, one of Saul's servants, was there doing some kind of ritualistic uh, uh, service there in the sanctuary. And so David saw him there, and he saw David. And that's why he was introduced last chapter, because I told you he's a bad guy. We're just uh, being introduced to him, and now we see why. Uh, so a first item up here to consider and saw the grand paranoid manipulator. He starts in now with his lies and his slandering and his bribes and accusations. And what's driving all of this is jealousy and envy. You know, James chapter 3 reminds us where you have selfish ambition, where you have somebody who's all about themselves, there you will find chaos and every evil practice. And so there's nothing scarier than somebody who's self-absorbed. Now, everything revolves around Saul. So angry Saul's holding court. That's what you would do under the tamarisk groves there. And uh, up on a hill, the language is the same as Ezekiel chapter 16, where you would have pagan shrines there and prostitutes. And it was just a terrible place. But Saul is an unbeliever. So Saul's there. And notice spear in hand. He's always holding that spear because this guy is driven by fear and insecurity. And he's always got to have his spear. Uh, he's a constant threat to friend or foe. And he rules that way. He doesn't lead in love. He drives in fear and intimidation. Now, uh, your text says David's been found out. So somebody's got gave word back to Saul while he's under the tree doing their thing there. And Saul is miffed in all caps. He's annoyed to the bone. All right. So he comes. Uh, here comes the bribery and the false promises and the appeal to men's greed uh, for riches and promotion. So he says to them, listen, he finds out, hey, David's up over there. You know, we just found out he, he, he's close at hand. So he says, hey, uh, all of you, 
Can the son of Jesse, which is a pejorative term and insult, like calling a guy by his last name, he doesn't want to use his titles or anything like that. He says, can that guy get you into country estates and prime real estate with properties with sprawling vineyards in Napa and Sonoma Hills? Can he do that for you? Uh, No. Uh, Can that good-for-nothing guy, can he make you a five-star general? No, I don't think so, like I can. And so Saul keeps on, there's a Yiddish word, kvetching. To kvetch is to be a chronic complainer and a whiner. Well, this is what this guy is. So in verse 8, he says, So now I have to hear from somebody other than my own loyal men here have to tell me, because you all obviously had to know that my son Jonathan is doing some kind of best friend handshake with this enemy of mine. You all would know that. Of course, my own son encouraging David to ambush me, to lie in wait, to kill me. Even today, he says, in his delusional thinking that David's lurking in the shadows. And then he says, I love this, furthermore, none of you love me. None of you care for me. And I guess none of you want to live in a fat estate in Napa either. Now, Verse 9. I throw in the Napa just for fun, you know. Verse 9. Now, that's when suddenly a hand goes up, a greedy, dirty hand. And, and, and Dog raises his hand. And he's, oh, 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 call on me, call on me. And Saul sees Dog's hand go up, go up and he says, what, what up, Dog? I've been waiting for that line for about three minutes. (laughs) What up, Doug? And Doug says, hey, I seen that rascal. There may be nobody in this whole group who loves you, King, like I love you. Therefore, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know because I care about those vineyards. I mean, I care about you. And I really want to tell you, number one, I saw this guy at church service. Number two, you know what the pastor did for him? The pastor was praying for him. And then he hooked him up with all kinds of food and supplies. He baked him some fresh bread. And that's not all, boss. He goes and gives him that giant sword of Goliath. And then an evil smirk comes over King Saul's face. Verses 11 through 19. Now with all this information, then the king sends for the priest Ahimelech, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. Now, that's already we know there's going to be trouble. (laughs) Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword? and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. This is David, who says to anybody who wants to lift a finger or a bad word about Saul, I will not lift a finger to the Lord's anointed, and he calls him his master. All the more sting of these slanderous words. Verse 14. Ahimelech, the priest, answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law? 
captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king, Saul, ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they didn't tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Dog, you turn and strike down the priests. So Dog, the Edomite, Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to sword Nob, the whole city, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and babies, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. So Roman numeral number four, happy Halloween. Uh, nothing scarier than a man who is self-absorbed. Now, when self gets the throne, and we talk about this a lot because uh, our selfish, sinful nature survived our conversion, and we all deal with selfishness at some level. Now, when self gets on the throne, uh, God doesn't matter anymore. There's no fear of God. Uh, God's laws don't matter um, because you call the shots. Family obligations and bonds are disregarded. doesn't matter if you're a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter or a mom or a dad. You're all dispensable. Because if I want what I want and you get in the way, I will gladly, self will gladly throw all of those people under the bus to get what self wants. And that's how we see things, terrible things happen in this world. Now, human life really loses its sacredness to guys like that. The only thing sacred is self and uh, what self wants and what self wants to get. So verse 11, Saul calls the pastor or the priest and the entire monastery or the entire seminary or the entire Bible college or the entire church staff with the family members to court under that same tree next to some immoral gross statue or goddess. And verse 12, the first accusations fly. You're a co-conspirator with David. You fed him, you prayed with him, you armed him so he could be better prepared to kill me, which he's even hiding and lurking in the shadows at this moment. So in verse 14, the priest kind of defends himself and David. He says, who would win the most loyal contest if you held it for everybody who works in the palace? Wouldn't it be the captain of your bodyguard? the most respected man in the household, not to mention the king's son-in-law. Come on. Now, it's interesting. Saul will only call David son of Jesse, not captain of the bodyguard or uh, the guy who killed Goliath or the most respected or his own son-in-law. He calls him just son of Jesse. 
Verse 15, he says, yeah, I always pray with David. What's the big deal? Why wouldn't I do that? That's my job. And then furthermore, all these allegations are groundless, and he calls himself your servant. So he's, he's firm but respectful. He says, your, your servant is clueless about any of this. We don't have any idea of what you're talking about. In the Hebrew, it says neither small nor great. I, we don't, I don't understand anything, nothing about this whole thing. Saul's verdict. Now, you're guilty and you're all going to die. There's something about the truth that's very interesting to me. The truth, Jesus says, to a believer will set your heart free. And to an unbeliever, it, it'll, it'll boil your blood. It'll push you over the edge. The truth pushes somebody who doesn't want to hear the truth, who just has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, the truth just grates on them and is not well received at all. And so the truth is what pushes Saul over and he flies into a rage and says, uh, execute these priests. Uh, they're in on the whole deal. They knew David was escaping and they didn't tell me. And you know, King Saul has created pretty much a police state here in that he expects all the citizens to be spying on one another. Like they knew that David was fleeing, which they didn't really know. David didn't tell them that. But a police state is set up to where everybody looks at everybody with suspicion. And if anybody senses that there's disloyalty to the dictator, to the antichrist, well, you're going to get turned in. And that's what Saul has created there. The soldiers are dumbfounded. They hear, you want us to kill the pastors standing there. And he says, yeah. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. Just like we wanted to kill your own son when he turned and told the same guys, kill Jonathan. They said, uh, like that's going to happen. We're not going to kill him. And they, they refrained again. Um, but there was a foreigner among them, this guy, who was just as greedy as could be. And so he turned to Doeg and said, you go it. Ahead. Verses 18 and 19, he's a foreigner and he wants the payoff. You know, so he says, listen, you said just kill the priest, man. I'm going to show you I'm auditioning for that house and for that five-star commander uh, uh, title, you know. So I, I want it all. I'm going, to, I'm going to stand out and I'm going to ingratiate myself to this wicked king for the sake of greed. Men kill for cash for gold, for jewelry, for cars, for positions, for sex, for drugs, for pocket change, for designer sneakers. Greed is a more corrupting and powerful force than anybody really realizes. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, be on your guard for all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in his possessions. He doesn't, it doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions, but in a right relationship with God. And so just awful, terrible thing to see that, that somebody could, in that kind of moment, just put everybody to death. So one might ask a question, how does Saul, who started out pretty good, started out pretty good, a likable guy with gifts and callings from God, very civilized, very polite, how does a guy like that go to a crazy killer like this? Well, trust me, the answer is it goes from A to B 
from B to C to C to D to D to E. It never goes from chapter 13 to chapter 22. No. There's chapter 14, then there's chapter 15, then there's chapter 16. And there's grace upon grace, and there's hardening of heart, and there's uh, second chances, and he just doesn't do it. One baby step at a time of moral compromises, and this is, of course, how church kids can end up as atheists, um, using drugs, going to parties. This is how pastors can end up having adulterous affairs and forfeiting their ministries uh, from A to B, to B to C, to C to D. D. You know, you get it. You know the alphabet. It, it doesn't go from A to Z. It never goes from A to Z. Even Saul was too smart for that. We had to get him to Z one letter at a time. And that's how he'll do with you as well, one letter at a time. The remedy, of course, is to fix the course corrections when they're going off. Every day to have a time of repentance and prayer. Every day to be in the word and to be in fellowship and not to be playing games. Spiritual procrastination is lethal. It's just lethal. That's what he did. He kept waiting for, well, maybe next chapter. Maybe next chapter I'll get it right. Maybe next chapter. And now we're at chapter 22, and it's pretty bad scene here. Uh, verses 20 to the end. But Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, escaped and fled to join David. So one guy, one priest makes it out. He told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. That David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who's seeking your life is seeking mine as well. You're safe with me. So the bad news is delivered, and David hears that terrifying and terrible news that even, even the priests were slaughtered because of their indirect association with David. Now, can you imagine the sickening, nauseating feeling of hearing? Now, you've been running from this guy. He's tried to kill you a few times. And, and isolated experiences. And, and maybe one of your friends. But that's where it stopped. And now you get word that 85 priests of the Lord have been slaughtered. Not only them, but the whole town. Men, women, children, boys and girls, and babies. Not only that, the livestock as well. The entire, like a bomb went off. And it's all because of you. He's after you. And it's not an ordinary citizen who's after him. It's the king. The king is determined. And now if he's wiped off out an entire town and all the priests of the Lord who served in the holy place What's going to happen to you, man? And David says, don't worry, you'll be safe with me. That's where the Holy Spirit and faith in this guy arises. And he says, don't worry. Now, I'm responsible for this because they weren't really after them. They were after me. But you stay here with me, and you're going to be safe. And he's just comforting this guy. And he, David suspected that this dog 
uh, was the bad guy and he would do exactly what he did. And now, you know, David's got the prophet Gad. He's got a high priest with him, this guy who just escaped. And he's got 400 loyal men that will grow to 600. And now David's an official outlaw, but one day he'll be king. Now, I want to give you some reflections, you know, like I like to do. But let's go to Psalm 142 and just, I'm going to give you quick four little sentences that I take out of that. So why don't you go to 142? Because this is what got him through this kind of time. And you'll see in the preface there in your Bible that this is written when he's in the cave. So David comes through this terrible time victorious and blessed. So let's see how he did it. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell my trouble. Number one, pour out your heart to God. Talk to the Lord about everything. Tell him your troubles and ask for mercy. Reading on. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. So number two, live by truth. No matter how you feel, the truth is you're weak, but God's on top of things. Live by the truth, not by your feelings. Reading on. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. So, you know what? It's nice to have a best friend. Thank you, Lord, for Jonathan. It's nice that my parents are now here, my brothers. Thank you. They're supportive. And I've got 400 guys. Thank you. But you know what? Ultimately, it's not about them. My only hope is with you, God. So number three, make God your only hope. David didn't have to say, look, no one's concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life because certain people did. But David sees past that and knows that if God is not for me, if God's not my only refuge, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. God is my only hope. He's your only hope. And then finishing up. I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I'm desperate in need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. So number four, always let faith have the last word. God will see you through, and this will end well. This is both your request and your confession of faith. I ask him to deliver me, and I know he will. So four things. Pour out your heart to God. Live by the truth no matter how you feel. Make God your only hope, and always let faith have the last say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for chapter 22. We're learning a lot. We pray that these things would stick in our hearts and you'd knit them into the fabric of our souls and we could call upon these truths when we're in time of distress and trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song.
Now, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your great love. We commit ourselves to your care. Just touch our hearts and show us the areas that need some repentance. Give us a willing spirit and awareness to know when we're off course, Lord, and to take heed by the power of the Holy Spirit, even to seek somebody to pray with us tonight, Lord. We thank you for your great grace that makes coming to you so easy. We confess our sins. You're faithful just to forgive us from all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because you want us to succeed. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Drive safely.